exclamation point. Um, and I think you'll find out, um, well, you probably already know, but you'll find out why in this passage I entitled it this way. Uh, so you can be turning there, but uh, let me share a story from uh, via w Wikipedia on the whiskey tax. I don't know if you ever heard about the whiskey tax. Uh, it's one of the first taxes imposed in the uh, founding of our country. It became law in 1791. It was intended to generate revenue to pay off our debts from the Revolutionary War. It was applied to all distilled spirits, uh, but whiskey was a very a rapidly expanding uh, spirit that was out there, and, and so it became known as the whiskey tax. Uh, farmers on the western frontier, at that time being western Pennsylvania, were accustomed to distilling their surplus rye, barley, wheat, corn, or, or grain mixtures to make whiskey. Um, and they resisted the tax. Uh, in, in those regions, whiskey often was even a medium of exchange. And many of uh, the resistors were actually war veterans from the Revolutionary War. And they believed that they were uh, fighting for this, the very cause of the American Revolution. Uh, no taxation without representation uh, in this tax. So uh, throughout western Pennsylvania, the different counties, protesters uh, used violence and intimidation. They actually tarred and feathered a guy. Um, they threatened people. They, I think they kidnapped somebody. Um, and they were resisting this tax in different ways. And resistance came to a climax in July of 1794 when a U.S. Marshal arrived in western Pennsylvania to, to serve writs to the distillers who had not paid the excise, the alarm was raised and, and rumors actually were spreading everywhere uh, about what was happening, that the federal government was basically kidnapping people, taking them, dragging them away, and so forth. And so uh, 500 armed men gathered around the home of the tax inspector, uh, General John Neville, a, a veteran of the war as well, and basically attacked it. It was a war, a, a, little, a little rebellion there. Uh, they attacked the house. He escaped with uh, his life. Uh, but Washington, the capital, responded by sending first peace commissioners to try to negotiate with the rebels, while at the same time calling on the different states to raise their militias. And um, eventually 13,000 militiamen were sent into western Pennsylvania with President George Washington at the head of the militia. Um, well, the 500 rebels or so figured out it was smarter to, to get out of there, and so there was no confrontation. They dispersed, uh, a number were arrested, and the whiskey tax was, uh, was enforced, though not very successfully. Uh, it was hard to find people and to tax them, and it eventually was repealed. Why do I share this story? I share this story to illustrate that there is nothing new under the sun. Um, this idea of being upset with the government and to the point of, of even taking up arms or doing something drastic or violent has been going on since the very beginning of our country. This is the beginning, the first incident. And we live in a day and age where we see these sorts of things going on and it can be shocking. And, and, and I'm not saying don't be shocked, but don't be surprised uh, because this is part of the reality we live in. And, and we also, I think, ought to take a lesson from this, that in each one of us is the potential to be a whiskey tax rebel. And our passage today is going to go right at that tendency, right after our hearts. Um, I just want to tell you ahead of time, uh, many people 
are not going to be happy or are not happy with what it says in God's word in Romans 13. And I suspect many people here will not be happy. Actually, just so you know, as I prepared this, I wasn't very happy in some ways too. Um, but it's God's word. And God's happy about his word. And so our job and our need is to change, right? So that we can be happy about his word as well. And we need the Holy Spirit. We need the word and the teaching and proclamation of the word, but the power of God, the Holy Spirit with us. So let's pray and ask God to help us. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that your truth is your truth. And, and you are faithful in that. And not only that, but your truth is good and glorious. We don't always see that. And we can resist it. So help us, Lord, now to have open minds and hearts to receive your word. To let it do its work of conviction. To let it do its work of driving us to Christ and the power and the truth of the gospel. And Lord, this is a pattern throughout all your word. How your word works and how you work in our lives. So we're, we're excited to see you change us. That we would be happy about what you're happy about. And have hearts that love your ways, that live in the gospel. So help us, Lord. Help us, Holy Spirit, now. Dwell with us in power. Help me to teach accurately, proclaim enthusiastically, and the result would be that we would hear you. And you would be glorified as you work in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let me read chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. It says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes, to whom taxes are owed. Revenue, to whom revenue is owed. Respect, to whom respect is owed. Honor, to whom honor is owed. This passage teaches us, in line with what we've been learning through Romans, and of course this section follows on from the clear uh, and comprehensive declaration of the, of the righteousness of God in Christ, of the good news of Jesus Christ, and, and the call to a transformed life. So this passage follows in the flow of that. Therefore, this passage really teaches us that a gospel-transformed life submits to authorities. Simply put, a gospel-transformed life submits to authorities. There are three things I want to talk about right from the passage. First, they are Appointed authorities are appointed by God. Second, they bear the sword. And third, we must submit. Just following the text here. So first, they are appointed by God. Paul starts out in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. This is going to ring throughout the passage. This is his core exhortation. 
Uh, and everything is really flowing from this and to this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. He actually says, literally, let every soul. Let every soul. And, and that sort of language we use, right, when, when we say every soul in that place was enjoying the time or something like that. We, it's a word that we use to emphasize every single person that was present. And that is the emphasis that Paul is bringing here. Let every single person, without exception, there is nobody who, who is, you know, in a special place here. Let every person... Everybody be subject to the governing authorities, to be subject to those who are in a place of authority, who govern, who have a, a, an authority granted to them to do certain things. And he's going to go into what those things are. We'll talk about that. And now this section of scripture has implications for all levels of authority. So there are all different levels of authority. And that's important to bear in mind as we look at this passage uh, to recognize that Scripture honors multiple spheres of authority. And so there are spheres such as the family, the church, uh, uh, organizations of different sorts like the workplace or a union or something like that. There's uh, the local government, the state government. There are all these other, all these different spheres, but they, the emphasis here in the particular context here is on civil authorities. And so that's what he's talking about here is civil authorities. In other words, your, your town, your state uh, your federal government, perhaps, uh, national government. And the call here is very clear. Be subject to the governing authorities. Be subject to these authorities who rule. Um, be subject, is, it's also the word submit. It's not a word that is kind of, um, you know, a unclear, nebulous word. It isn't like, you know, try to help be helpful. That's not what it, it says. Do your best. You know, I know it's hard and like, you know, for most of the stuff, if you can do it. No, it's, it's be subject to. It's submit to. It's come under that authority and, and, and support and obey that authority. That's the word. So the, the word for submit is, means those things. It's come under. It's support. It means both in your actions and your heart, by the way, right? God doesn't give us commands and say, hey, just as long as you do the thing, you know, you're supposed to do, you can hate it. But as long as you do it, that's okay. No. The goal is submission, the fullness of submission. I support, I'm, I'm for it. And now he's going to get into why, because I'm sure you're thinking, oh, but I can't have, I can't feel good about that. I get it. We're going to see reasons why. So hang in there. But it is a command to support at that level. What would justify such obedience in hand and heart? Well, Paul answers that. He starts right away. For he explains, what, what is the reason? What's the basis? Why I say this? For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. That's a strong word. Instituted. They, they have been formed. They have been, they have been designated, appointed by God. God actually was involved in them arriving at that place, at that office. Providentially, sovereignly. And by the way, that doesn't mean the process was a perfect one either. Remember, this is being said to whom? Who's the letter written to? Romans, right? And how did Rome get its authority? Conquered people. And how did the emperor get into office? By killing the previous guy, maybe, or whatever. Or maybe being a descendant. How did he rule? Often terribly. 
So all those exceptions that we're maybe thinking about, like can I get an exception because of this, are, are covered in the, the reality of the strength of, of the command, but also the context. This is Rome. And it says that these authorities are there from God. The authority itself comes from God, by the way. That's part of what's saying here. God is the ultimate authority. He's the source of authority. He's the only source of authority, actually. And so any authority that exists, exists from God, ultimately. He has sovereignly allowed it, designated it, appointed that authority. And so that's the reality behind this command. That's what he's requiring of us because God is the one that institutes the authority. Now, you might be thinking, like I think some of our passages are like, where are the qualifiers here? This is, you're scaring me. Um, isn't this divine right of kings? If you know history, guys, you know, some of you maybe know the divine right of kings. It was a theory of governance in the medieval ages that said that the king or the queen were there by God and answered to nobody but God. Now, functionally, they didn't answer to God, <laughs> often. And it was this sense of absolute authority. I can do whatever I want. I'm the king, I'm the queen, and God himself has put me here. Now, it was true in God's providence and his sovereignty, his ultimate control over things. He's in control over all things, good things, and he's in control over evil things to ultimately use them in the end for good. But nevertheless, he is sovereign. So he is sovereign over that person being in office. But the problem with the divine right of kings is it neglects the context and the other things in scripture. And it takes a section of this and says the authority is from God without recognizing that if God has given the authority, then it, we must understand how God understands authority. And that's what Paul's going to get into here. There is a particular role for the governing authorities. There's, a, there's a, actually a, a fairly narrow scope for their authority. They can't do anything they want. They are accountable to God and his word. And we know God is the ultimate authority. So when God says do this and the, the governing authorities say, no, don't do this, do this opposite, violate that thing God says, we say, no. You are not the ultimate authority God is. So there's this context. And then there's the other context of the other spheres that God has instituted that are in Scripture. Like the family, the church, um, and other societal spheres that are legitimate and part of God's order. And that's a context here. That's important to understand. So that's how I would understand Scripture. That's how I would refute someone who might say, well, this doesn't this give the, the governing authorities right to do anything? No, it doesn't. Nevertheless, within their sphere of authority, yes, you must submit to their authority because it's given of God. And that's one of the most important things to understand in this passage that God himself has appointed them and therefore we must submit. We must understand that they, they are given this rule and we don't have an option here. Unless they call us to do something that God has made clear we ought not to do, within their realm, they have authority there to be responded to appropriately. And again, just remember, these are given, these words are given in the day of Nero and Caligula and Pontius Pilate and the Roman Empire. And for the Jewish people, the Roman Empire had arrived at their authority in an illegal way. Nevertheless, Paul's calling them to submit. Those are some truths for us to wrestle with. It's actually interesting. I've been reading through, uh, in light of this, reading through um, First and Second Kings. 
and to read the stories of the kings and the rulers and all that was going on. In uh, this time period, this is the time period from, from Saul, uh, so the kingship of Israel from Saul to David to Solomon to, to the descendants and so forth, and the kingdom splits, uh, and then they eventually go into exile, so it's a long period, like 400 years or so. Uh, and there are 43 kings that I count, and that includes the, when they split, there's two kingdoms par in parallel. 43 kings. And they're all God's anointed and in, in Scripture. They're, they're considered that. And there's a, a, an honor and a respect and a submission that the people of God are called to. But of the 43 kings, I went through and I counted how many were good, more or less. Some of them were good and then they ended up turning bad, but more or less were good. How many of those do you think? Well, anyone have a guess of the 43? We're good. Yeah, you're in the ballpark. Nine were kind of had something good about them. But of those nine, only a, probably three were pretty much good their entire reign. Three of 43. That's the reality of, of, of governing authorities. They are not perfect. Often they're ungodly. And yet God is still sovereign and God still works good through their reigns. It's interesting to think about this as well in the time of Christ. He was in Israel. This is God in the flesh. He has authority over all things. And he's in Israel. And Israel is under Rome. It's an illegal government over Israel. It, it arrived there through intrigue and through really breaking promises. And yet they're in charge. And when Jesus is pressed by the Herodians and the Pharisees to answer the question, should you pay taxes to Caesar? It's a loaded question, right? Because the Herodians say, yes, we should submit to Rome. And it's probably more practical than anything for them. They realize like, hey, Rome, Rome has got stuff for us and we can get power. And if we don't follow them, they're going to crush us. And the Pharisees opposed it. The Pharisees said, well, you know, the history of Israel is they're, they're supposed to have a king chosen of God. That This royal line is supposed to be ruling here. And they had a legitimate claim in that as well. And so these two parties get together, uh, they conspire together against Jesus, and they think they can kind of pin him down with this question. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? And if he answers one way, he gets in trouble with the Romans. He answers the other ways, he gets in trouble with the Pharisees and what they claim Scripture teaches. What does Jesus say? It's a brilliant answer. Bring me one of those coins. Whose face is on it? Caesar. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. Profound, succinct, genius answer. And an answer that shapes how we understand government, by the way. And in saying that, he wasn't saying Caesar and God are equals. Basically saying, of course, God is God's in authority over all things. He doesn't have a parallel rule. But under that, Caesar has a legitimate rule. And you are to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. This is Jesus, God in the flesh, saying, submit to Caesar. With all the problems of Caesar, all the problems with the process, all the problems with the reality, nevertheless, submit to Caesar. Jesus is never calling for overthrowing Rome, but submitting and trusting God in that. So, though imperfect, though sometimes corrupt, though often manned by people who, do, who don't follow God, nevertheless, government is instituted by God and thus must be supported by those who love God. 
A gospel-transformed life submits to government authority. So let me ask you. Do you support, in this way, the current administration of our country? Maybe for some of you, the better question is, do you, did you support the last administration? Ouch. I'm sure all of us, maybe most of us, are saying ouch. Because I, I, I think we struggle with this. But I think the scripture here is clear. And when I say support, I mean... Did you pray for them? And I'm sure most of you, probably all of you did. But also, did you celebrate the good more than the problems? Did you give thanks for the good things more than the problems? Did you talk more about what was wrong or what was right? Would others, if they had been with you as you talked about the, or as you talk about the administration, so whatever camp you're in, just so you know, if you're a guest here, we have people across the spectrum and we call everybody to be faithful Christians walking in the gospel together as, as they have different views. I don't have time to tease all that out, so, but just so you know. Um, but let me ask you, if people were listening to you now or back then, would they say you were a, a good model of Romans 13, 1 through 7? An exemplary model of this? Or would they say you're not that different than the world? Hear the word of God. Hear the call of God here for all of us. By the way, this is all going to hurt, and I'm going to continue the interrogation. I have to because it's in the Word. We're going to get places where we, where we find power for these things, so hang in there. <laughs> but let, let the law of God have its effect in pointing out what's wrong and convicting and leading us to Jesus. We'll get to Jesus. We'll talk about the power in the gospel to walk in these things. So let's continue for a little while. Second point, they bear the sword. Rulers, it says in verse 3, are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he's a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The governing authorities are granted the sword by God to be his avenger, God's avenger of wrongdoing. They are servants. That's used again and again throughout this passage. They're called servants, ministers. They're actually, one of the words is the same word used for those who served in the temple. So it's a, it's a very strong sense of being God's servants. It's, it, this is what God has done in implementing government. They act as his servants to do God's work. And the servant is to do, to reward good and to punish evil. To bring vengeance on evil. That's the point. God's governing authorities are God's servant to do God's work. Now, if we read in the book of Revelation and look at things like the beasts, and it speaks of, of government and, and, and authorities in there, and the fact that they are in Revelation portrayed as basically instruments of the devil, destroying all goodness. If we looked at that alone, we might think, well, no, the let's, government all is evil. And so let's overthrow it or at least go and hide from them. If we just took that. And I understand that Revelation is true. God, I mean, the evil one does use governments 
to this day to do evil things. I'm, I'm not denying that. But we must understand Romans alongside of that. And when we come and we view our government, let's not cast them as the great Satan who's there to do evil, but to understand, no, these are God's servants set there to reward good and punish evil. And that is an important function from God himself. It really is the fundamental role of government to bear the sword to reward good and avenge evil. Anything short of this and anything beyond this is outside of the scope of Paul's teaching here. He's very succinct and, and, and this call is very succinct. Perhaps we should also be succinct in our understanding and practice of the role of government and understand how it fits alongside the other spheres, as I've mentioned. I'm tempted to talk a lot about biblically driven political science, but I wrote a book to try to help God's people think through this, and I'd encourage you to get the book, Confessions of a 21st Century Martyr, and if, uh, if you need, I'd love to give you a free copy. Uh, it talks more about that. So I just have to put that off to the side because you might have questions about all this. But I think we need to take our cues from Scripture. And Scripture, uh, whatever extent of government we might think is right, the bottom line function of the government is to bear the sword for the sake of justice, enforcing the good and punishing the evil. That's what Paul is teaching. And this means even to the point of death. It's a prerogative of, of, from God. It's a God-given prerogative. And they are to to carry out wrath on the wrongdoer. Take a look at that, at the passage, and let me ask you, whose wrath do they carry out on the wrongdoer? God's wrath. Not the state's wrath. Not personal wrath. It is actually God's wrath. And so God uses government to carry out his wrath. Do you remember last week? Romans 12, saying, vengeance is mine. Leave it to God, that, that we are to do good to those who do evil to us, recognizing that it's not my job, especially for a believer, having been forgiven, I'm going to extend forgiveness and let God take care of the, their evil. And this is one way he does it. If certainly final judgment is part of that. And certainly if the person flees to Jesus, in Jesus, Jesus bears our, our wrath that we deserve on the cross, wonder of wonders. And then he sanctifies us to understand what right and wrong is. And so he deals with it that way. But there's a temporal wrath that's brought by the government. That's what is being said here. And so the government is God's servant, minister, to bring wrath on evil. To, to bring consequences, to ensure the thriving of culture and, and people through this. Thank God for a police and judicial system that largely fulfills this very well, where we live. Um, it's it, sure there's reform that's needed, um, but we live in a system that does a very good job of keeping crime in check, keeping evil in check, bringing accountability, ensuring health of our society. And I think we just need to acknowledge that and be grateful for this, that this actually is being fulfilled. It's imperfect, and it doesn't mean be passive. There's a particular way to respond following the rule of law to things that need to reform. Yes, indeed. I don't mean to deny that at all. Paul doesn't either. There is reform that's needed. But let's not neglect the reality that God is using government to do these things. And if they didn't, our world would be so different. It can be really healthy to travel outside the United States to go to places where there isn't this level of 
justice being done. And the sorts of things that go on, examples that I looked up and, and, and uh, have observed too. Another country, a new husband was lynched by a mob because he wasn't from the right social strata to marry his wife. A man gets beaten by a mob for stealing a gold chain. When the police arrive, they tie him to a motorcycle and drag him through the streets. Countries where the majority religion uh, members accuse others of blasphemy or other crimes and, and they receive a death sentence. Police officers who make random stops and threaten to jail the driver unless he pays an expected bribe. These are the sorts of things that go on throughout the world and yet we live in a place where, where this is done very well, not perfectly. And just so you know, if you are a citizen of Haverhill, um, that the Haverhill police meet with clergy and leaders regularly. Um, their chaplain is, is a, a brother, uh, a Hispanic brother and pastor. Um, and they interact with us. And when there have been concerns, they've listened. Um, they've been trained in things like understanding diversity appropriately. They've been trained at the level that, that like the higher level, FBI, uh, state police are in de-escalation. Uh, and so they've been trained how to de-escalate things, how not to resort to violence quickly, how not to, when they feel threatened, to go to their gun right away, but things to do. They're, they're trained in these things. We have a really good police force. And the fact that we can have dialogue on these things, and there is reform, is, is a wonderful blessing. So let's celebrate that. Let's not let the things that need to be reformed like fill our vision only. But be grateful for what we have. And grateful for the ways that God brings justice in our country. Thank God for overturning Roe versus Wade. Whatever your political persuasion, I hope you can agree that aborting children is an evil thing. There are issues here of care for, for mothers and so forth that, I, that are, have to be addressed. But thank God for the justice of this being overturned. May we see more of this. 70 million babies aborted over 50 terrible years. Thank God that this is being stopped. It may be stopped entirely. Let's pray for that. Let's continue to seek reform in this area. And there are many others as well. But let's be grateful for the role of government and bearing the sword to, re to reward the good and punish the evil. Finally, third point, we must support them. Verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection. Goes back to his command, his core exhortation that he started out with. One must be in subjection. And then he gives reasons. Sums up his argument in many ways. Not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So we know that the governing authorities bear the sword to execute God's wrath. And I'd rather stay out of God's wrath if I can. So just street smarts, try not to get on the wrong side of the law. That's what Paul's saying. And more than that, be in subjection. Make it your, your, your behavior and your heart. But also for the sake of conscience. What does he mean by that? Well, he's pointing back to the fact that it's God who has set up this system. As imperfect as it is, it's from God. And so when you say, ah, I'm not going to do that. I disagree. This law is unjust. I'm just not going to do it. You are ah, to God. Even if that law needs to be reformed, even if you feel it's unjust, for the sake of God's, of the, to avoid God's wrath and the sake of conscience. These are two motives that are in Scripture a lot fear and love, two 
fundamental, basic motivations. The, the greater motivation, of course, is love. Love is wanting to do good for someone else. But fear, wanting to avoid pain for yourself, is, is a, an important motivation. And it's often what gets us started on things. Fear, but also love. So let me give an example that you're not going to like. I didn't like it either. And I thought about not putting it in here because I didn't want to be convicted myself and have you guys hear me say it and hold me accountable to it. But anyhow, let's take a law that we all probably break often. And there are different levels of law, so we, I'm not going to get into all that. So this is not a felony breaking of law, but it is a rule. Maybe it's a rule, not a law. And you probably know what I'm going to say. The speed limit. Oh, look, we got a picture. The speed limit. God has appointed authorities who've made these limits to promote good and prevent evil, right? That's what's going on. And God is doing this through them. And therefore, we should be glad to obey the rules given by God. Because love says, I love God. And he has been in control of the guy who set this speed limit, even though I think it's like 30 miles too slow. But it is the law that's there. And God's good. And so I want to... I want to submit because I love God. And I want to submit because I don't want to get a ticket. I don't want my insurance to go up. That's what Paul's talking about, right? The wrath, fearing wrath, but also conscience. Now, there are exceptions here. Yeah, I get it. That there are times when you're driving for the sake of safety, you, you can't be the guy, only guy going 55. I, I get that. There, so the concern for human life overrides that. But don't use that as an excuse. And I get that it's enforced at a different level than it's on the sign. I get that. So I'm not going to tell you what you must do. But what I'm going to tell you is that you probably must do something different than you're doing. And that's what I'm thinking through. Um, I don't, just so you know, I'm, I don't drive around at like 95. But, I, but this is not an area that I'm doing. On the, you know, before the Lord, I don't think I'm going to be able to say, yes, Lord, I've been impeccable in my speed limit obedience. So... Here's an example. Now, there are more serious examples, of course. Um, and we need to consider that. But Paul is calling us to this sort of a heartfelt, out of love and out of fear, obedience. And he continues with other implications as well. He says, uh, this is why we pay taxes. And so pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. That we are... To pay taxes, and there's two different words, taxes and revenue by, uh, here. By the way, they were very controversial in the, in the Roman Empire. Taxes is a word that speaks of like income tax and poll tax. And revenue is things like sales tax. And so basically Paul's saying pay your income tax and pay your sales tax. Um, and do it for these reasons. But not just that, right? He doesn't just say that because we might be like, that's nice, I can do my taxes, but I hate this thing. He says, no, respect, we're respect is owed. So, and again, the context here is governing authorities. You owe them your respect. You might disagree. You might disagree with their policies, and there's a way to deal with that. But you owe them your respect to know that they are put there by God, and therefore we ought to respect them. And then honor is a different word. It, it, it actually means we honor them. We, we look at the good, and we, we understand the good part, and we elevate them. That's what he's saying. So, it's not just what you do, it's how you feel. Now, totally other subjects, 
when there are things that are wrong, what do you do? Yes, we are there to, to, to lead and reform, but we're to follow, we're to submit to the laws in that. We're to submit to God in that. We're to understand he's in control. He's appointed them, even if it was, they got there in an illegal way, ultimately. We don't respond with the illegal things ourselves. We don't do a whiskey rebellion. We demonstrate our faith in God by walking through a process that follows the rule of law. We're not laws unto ourselves. We are not the ones installed in authority to make decisions at that level and that way. So rebelling against the system in that way is a disobedience to Romans 13. There is a way to do that, to follow the rule of law, to honor the Lord, to act in fear of God and love for God and how we respond. I hope that's clear. I, I have examples, more contemporary examples, but I'm going to pass over that and let you apply this to your situations and think through this. Let me finish, though, in a place that I think will help us in all this. Because you're probably feeling like command upon command is being heaped on you. And I want you to understand that the law of God is meant to drive you to Jesus. He's your only hope. He's the only one who's going to give you power to, to obey this. And it's the proclamation and the remembrance of the gospel and the power of the Spirit that motivates us and transforms us. So let me preach the gospel to you once more, but in light of this passage. God himself, who holds all authority over all things, who is glorious beyond understanding holier than we can imagine, took on flesh, became a baby, became a helpless baby in a manger, became a helpless baby who was born in a manger because the governing authorities decided to have a tax census and force people from their homes and the security of where you would want to have a baby to a foreign town where they couldn't find any place at the inn. Right from the beginning, Jesus came under authority and his Dependence and weakness as an infant was, was coming under his parents and coming under the, the authorities who told him that you have to go to Bethlehem. He grew up under his parents' authority. He grew up under the local synagogue's authority. He grew up under the Israeli Senate, what's called the Sanhedrin. And he grew up under Roman authority. He submitted to all these. He paid his taxes. He never advocated rebellion against any of these authorities. But God himself, who holds all authority, submitted himself under these authorities and fulfilled all righteousness in doing so. Ultimately, it cost him his life, this precious life of faith and obedience, of demonstrating his lordship over all, of fulfilling the promises of the Messiah. This, this life, this precious life, came under voluntarily, the Sanhedrin and its injustice sentencing him to death. It came under the Roman government affirming that unjust sentence through Pontius Pilate. He submitted himself to these authorities. Ultimately, in doing that, he was submitting himself to his father and the will of the father and his plan with the father from all eternity to go to that cross to fulfill our righteousness, to pay the wrath we deserve for our rebellion against the ultimate authority and other authorities. They had planned that and he followed through in that, laying down his life in our place on the cross, 
bearing the wrath we deserve, paying for it fully, saying on that cross, it is finished. Your sin, my sin, for disobeying God, not following authorities, paid for on the cross completely. There's no more payment left. He laid down his life under authority, humbled himself to this point, died, was buried, and the Father couldn't help but raise him from the dead, victorious over sin and death. Having lowered himself lower than all, he's exalted higher than all. He deserves all authority through his faithfulness, through his work, through his life. And now he reigns over all things. And he offers to each one of us, through simple faith, simply turning away from self-effort and our sin and turning to him, he offers complete forgiveness and power now to live like him. To submit ourselves to others, even when they're unjust. To submit ourselves to the governing authorities. To lay our lives down like he laid his life down in worship. And your obedience to the governing authorities, in light of this, is truly worship. And it's the truth of Christ crucified for you, risen from the grave, alive in you, that will empower you to do what God calls here in his work. To do it not only in your behavior, but with your heart. So let's just take a minute right now before we transition, just to give this to the Lord, whatever the particulars are for you. I'm sure you're challenged, but he wants to help you. Just take a minute to pray, and then Pastor Toby will come up and transition us to communion.